our second reading of God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, his, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it, was, where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. The Gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. Our text before us this morning is a fairly famous one. It is the beginning of Christ's signs, and it is performed at a certain wedding in Cana of Galilee. Whose wedding it is is really not made clear, and if you want an answer to that question, you can look at church tradition and you'll get some interesting stories, but the truth is we have no idea. It is someone connected to our Lord's physical family, though, because it's very clear that his mother is involved on a planning level, and that's likely a relative. It is a uh, typical wedding, and it is here that our Lord elects to do his first sign. As the ancient worship liturgies tend to point out, it is a uh, commendation indeed by the hand of our Lord that this, his first sign, should be done at a wedding. It is a commendation of the marriage estate, and it is a commendation of uh, the wedding, the ceremony itself. Our Lord has truly blessed that estate by doing this. However, uh, you can certainly go a bit too far with that. You may know, if you are familiar with Roman Catholicism, that Rome considers marriage to be a sacrament. Protestantism practices two sacraments. Romanism practices seven, and one of them is marriage. Marriage is a sacrament. 
well, where does that come from in their mind? Well, ground zero is actually right here in this text. The Romanist argument is that Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding, and that was an institution of a sacramental status. So that is why they consider marriage to be a sacrament. That's fairly nonsensical. Our Lord laid hold of two sacraments that already existed, and he did, in fact, uh, by way of institution, make them the Lord's Supper and baptism. But if merely attending a wedding, even if you do do a miracle there, is institution, then you really kind of have to say that banquets and uh, luncheons are sacramental too, because our Lord went to those and, in fact, ministered in those contexts, which means that whenever you go to a buffet, you're partaking of a sacrament. Rome has turned marriage into a sacrament, and it cannot be otherwise uh, besides what we're talking about, because biblically, marriage is a covenant. Covenants have sacraments. That's one of the integral parts of them. But a covenant isn't a sacrament. It contains a sacrament. You cannot have a covenant of a covenant be a sacrament of the other covenant. That's just really not the way things work. You enter into covenant with a spouse. It's not sacramental. But be that as it may, the ancient liturgies have pointed out that God chose to do his first sign through Christ at the wedding in Canaan, and that is significant. There are a couple of things on the shallow side as we move into the deep that we have to acknowledge. One is our Lord's presence at this wedding and his commendation of it by what he does shows that there is no particular sin in engaging in societal joy. In studying this passage, I was shocked at the, the debate that I watched unfold before my eyes as I watched older writers kind of argue back and forth on this point. I don't know that it would, would strike a modern reader to even think about it, but you go back 150 or 200 years and uh, theologians are arguing with each other. They are, are saying, um, on one side, the Christian should live a sober, serious life. All frivolity is not a part of the Christian life. You should be truly, truly somber and serious, honestly, to the point where you kind of look morose. And on the other side, there are those saying, look, Jesus went to a wedding, and he created wine for the wedding, and this is a decidedly joyful occasion. If you look in Scripture, marriage begins in Genesis 1. God gives husband and wife to one another from the very beginning of creation, but what you won't find in Genesis 1, or really anywhere in Scripture, is how do you have a wedding ceremony? They do, people do, they have all through time. A marriage is a covenant, and part of a covenant is that it's a public thing. 
But God never in the Hebrew Scriptures tells you, how do you have a wedding? And so people have generally done that in different ways at different times. And at this moment in church history, a wedding is a very joyful social occasion. The community is invited out, there is feasting, there is mingling, there is people talking. Uh, It's a happy occasion. Um, Jesus enters into that, and he enters into it without sin because our Lord is sinless. And so on the other side, there are those saying, it is perfectly okay for the Christian to be joyful, to be happy, to, to engage in social activities that are not inherently sinful, and they are not inherently frivolous, but they are joyful. We don't have to be the somber, morose stereotype of the Puritans. The Puritans weren't the stereotype, but you know the stereotype I'm talking about. Our Lord entered into a wedding, and it was a happy occasion, and he was in no sin in doing so. Um, Second of all, uh, it shows that as well-meaning as some Protestant campaigns for total abstinence of alcohol may be, uh, our Lord would not fit into them. Because you cannot come to this passage and say, Our Lord despises alcohol. Our Lord, by way of a miraculous uh, creation, by the mere power of his will, turns water into wine. And if you are of the mindset that, well, you know, wine that was drunk at dinners was very weak wine, it wasn't actually alcohol, which is is all invented whole cloth in the, the 19th century. There's no truth to this. Uh, it kind of falls on this passage because John goes out of his way to say our Lord creates wine. It is part of this social event. Christ does not condemn it in any way. And when he does a miracle and when water is turned into wine, the head of the ceremonies goes, this is the very best stuff possible for a party. It just doesn't hold up. Our Lord came eating and drinking. In fact, our Lord will say of himself elsewhere in the Gospel of uh, Matthew these words. Matthew 11 and verse 16 through 19. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John, that is John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. It is our Lord actually complaining that people have maligned him for enjoying, among other things, the drinking of wine. John Wesley may have had good intentions, but his activities are actually not what our Lord would do. But as I said, this is the shallow end of our passage, although it's amazing how much uh, verbiage on the paper this actually takes up. 
What is more significant about this passage is that it is the first of our Lord's signs, and John will make quite a bit out of that. In fact, the Gospel of John is built around seven, quote, signs that uh, seem to be the skeleton of what John's trying to present in his Gospel, and this is the first one. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean that this is the first of our Lord's, quote, signs? Does it mean, as the King James Version paraphrases it, this is the first of the miracles our Lord does in the flesh? Well, the answer is maybe, but it's not a slam dunk. Every other English translation doesn't use the word miracle here. It uses the word sign, and if you go back to the Greek, that's what you find. There, there's not a technical variant. It just This is the first of his signs. And the King James translators paraphrased it for some reason. They called it a miracle. The two terms relate to one another kind of the way the word square and rectangle do. Every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. Just so, in Scripture, you have three words that are used for miracles, and they are tightly wrapped around each other. They're talking about miraculous events, but they're not completely synonymous. The term miracle means the God who created natural law decides to work around it or above it or against it. It goes against natural law, and God can do that. He does a miracle, and that's what the term means. God does of his own free will something that natural law doesn't do. The second term, which we're not dealing with, is wonder, and that term means something that stops you in your tracks. You've been wondering through life, and suddenly something is happening that you cannot ignore. It, it strikes you, and you have to pay attention to it. And then the third term is sign. This term is used about miracles, but it means that the miracle has a message. Just like a stop sign has a message, it means stop and keep going. This is a miracle that is not just miraculous, but God is specifically saying something and generally saying something to a group of people. Not necessarily. You could have a sign for just a person, but generally the term is God is saying something through the miracle that is bigger than the miracle. And an example of that would be in Mark chapter 1, you have a leper who comes to Jesus. He says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing. He stretches out his hand and touches him, and he is made clean. This is a miraculous event. You have a leper who is healed of leprosy, but it's very clear our Lord is saying something more than just, you have been healed. He touches the leper, which in Levitical law, if something clean touches something unclean, the clean thing becomes unclean, but that doesn't happen with the touch of our Lord. The holiness, the greatness of the purity of our Lord Christ is such that uncleanness flees before him. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't become unclean. Uncleanness is driven away by the Lord. And so 
you have a message from God that in the Lord Christ, holiness is no longer on the defensive. Christ has come and holiness is on the offensive. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And more than that, leprosy, even in Leviticus, tended to be a ceremonial symbol of sin, rebellion, and death. When Jesus drives the leprosy out of the leper, it's not just you're being healed, but as leprosy represented all those things, the presence of Christ is being shown to drive all those things out. The Christ who can heal the leper is also the Christ whose blood will atone the sinner. And so this is a sign. This is a message. Well, this is the first of our Lord's signs. He may have done things miraculously before. Probably not, but it's possible. But this is the first public sign that our Lord does. And You have to wonder if he has done anything miraculous up till now because his mother clearly is acting in a way that she seems to indicate she knows our Lord can do something about this social faux pas that is taking place. She's also talked to angels and she's given birth as a virgin though too and so it's it's not required but she clearly does seem to know that Christ can do something about this. And Christ does. He does his first sign. So if this miracle, which just as an aside, is a creation by the will of Christ, there is is no secondary cause that can be connected to it, so that you have absolute creation taking place. The reason why I I hammer this home is because there are those who say, you know, uh, I believe everything that I read in the New Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian. Sure, Christ did miracles. I can believe in miracles. Uh, I don't really believe in creation ex nihilio, though. I don't believe that God created the world instantaneously and they shaped it over six days. Why would I believe that? Well, if you believe all the miracles of the New Testament, you believe that Jesus, of his will, instantaneously created wine out of water. It's not different except in scope. It is the absolute will of Christ to do something, and his mere will causes it to happen. So if you believe that Christ can just instantaneously turn water into wine... The only thing about creating the world out of nothing and then shaping over six days is that's bigger. But it's not different in quality in any way. But Christ does this miracle. He turns this water into wine. What is being said in this sign? Well, we need to read John carefully and we need to look at what he is doing Uh, he goes out of his way to explain to us where this water came from and what it's in. In verse 6, we read, Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, why would John tell us this 
if we were of such a nature to really know what those water pots were. He is assuming his readers may not know, and he needs to explain to them, now Jews have these very large water pots for purification reasons. Um, he, he spills some ink explaining this is a religious keeping of water. Why is he doing that? Well, it's because these are indeed religious. If, if we were Greeks, if we were Christians who, who had been Greeks or Romans or Parthians or Scythians, uh, in our house we wouldn't have these, but Jews have them. Why do they have them? Well, there are purification rites that Jews do, and it's very significant to their religion. In fact, if we were to turn to Mark 7 we would read this concerning Jewish religion. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders." When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Now, what Mark is talking about here is washings that are traditional. They are not washings that you will find in Leviticus. They are not in the Mosaic Law. But the reason why they have developed traditionally is because Jewish ceremonial religion does have certain washings, and the, the rabbis and such have extrapolated out of them lots more uh, merely traditional-based washings. So these water pots are used for human tradition and occasionally also for proper washings, but they are rooted in Jewish religion. And so anyone looking at the water pots is not thinking, Thank God if we have a drought, we have water coming in. They are thinking Jewish religion. So Jesus takes the water of this uh, religious uh, pot, and by his will, he transforms it. He transforms it from the powerless water because mere water doesn't actually wash away sins or have any actual power in it itself, and it certainly has no power to help a wedding that is running out of wine, but he transforms this water into something that does have power, good, wonderful wine that the wedding is needing, by his very will, by his presence... The empty water becomes the life-giving, God-gifted wine that they need. What is being said by that? Well, it is it's very clear. The sign is saying, without our Lord Christ, all the religious ceremonies, all the religion of the Jews... All biblical religion, without Christ, is powerless and empty. These water pots represent that religion, and God has given some of it, 
It has been from his hand, but it has been given specifically because Christ would be coming. Without our Lord Christ, nothing in the first three-fourths of the Bible will have any power to do anything for you at all. Without the promise of Christ, which was made in the third chapter of the Bible, I will, will send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Without Christ, all that religion is merely water. It is useless. It is vain. It is nothing. But now Christ has come. And he performs a miracle which testifies to himself, I have brought the power, I have brought the transformation, and I have begun the wedding. This is a wedding, after all. How many times in Scripture does God use marriage language for his people? It's all over the New Testament. It's also all over the Old Testament. I will betroth you to myself in faithfulness. You will be mine forever. You will be my bride. Well, Christ comes to the wedding, and the wedding cannot take place without Christ. The wine has run out, but our Lord Christ initiates the wedding. Up till now, God has had a people betrothed to himself, but it has been totally on the basis of promise, not fulfillment. Now, everything God has promised is happening. When God said, I will betroth you to myself, when he made himself a fiancé, now in our Lord Christ, the promises are going to be fulfilled. The wedding will take place. The bridegroom is here. We can now celebrate because the wedding promised through the ages is taking place. We are truly, truly going to be our Lord's. And then thirdly, there is the message of how God does things. A number of Puritan theologians pointed out that uh, the master of the ceremony is shocked. You are supposed to bring the best first. And then after people have become you know, kind of inebriated and kind of not really sensible anymore, then you bring the worst. I mean, that's how the world does things. But you, you have brought the very best last. Well, that is the way God does things. The world, when it offers you something, when the world gives you something that you think you value or desire, it is like what Peter writes about in 1 Peter. Uh, it's perishable, it can be corrupted, it fades away, it always does. What is of the world is always as good as it's going to get first, and then it collapses to nothingness. It collapses to where Solomon says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity in the world. It always does. It corrupts. But what does God do? God makes a promise in the garden, there will be the seed that will crush the serpent's head, he draws a people through history. He makes a covenant with them. And as the covenant goes through history, it gets better and better and better until the promise of the covenant is come in Jesus Christ and truly the very best is given last. 
What about human life in general? You are born a son of Adam. You are born in sin and death. But God gives you life through giving you faith in Christ. You are transformed and you become a believer. But is even that the best? The answer is no. Again, returning to Peter's writing in 1 Peter, he says, you know, uh, you need to set your heart on what's going to be given to you when our Lord Christ is revealed. You love him now, you celebrate him now, you're filled with joy, you have been given a promise of an inheritance that will not corrupt or fade away, Uh, and even now there is a blessing from God, but set your mind on what is coming because God always gives the best last. When the heavens are split, when the day of judgment comes, when we hear the trumpet and our Lord Christ claims all of creation, that will be the very best moment in history for every person who has ever been converted, for you and for me, and it still hasn't happened yet. God saves the best for last. And Christ is the fulfillment of every promise. He is the best. The very best at last is when he sits on his throne, we are with him, and sin and death has been driven away. Then shall the marriage feast be commenced in earnest. There will be no suffering, no sickness, no death, no sin. Our Lord Christ is the one who brings that to bear, and that is what he is saying with this sign. I am the best, I am the reason. I am the giving of joy. I am the bridegroom. Now, having said that, and that is the depth of our passage. Really, that is the spiritual meat you should take from this passage. There is still some uh, odd parts to it. And you really can't get away from them. You have a very odd conversation between Christ and his mom. Uh, Son, they've run out of wine. Okay, that's nothing to do with me. My time hasn't come yet. You know, whatever he tells you to do, you go do that. How do you interpret that exchange? If you are a Romanist, and again, it may seem like today I'm bashing Roman Catholics, but this is a favorite passage of theirs, Uh, If you are a Romanist, you will believe that you can seek Mother Mary in prayer and she will intercede for you with her son. I mean, this this is Roman doctrine. You pray to Mary and Mary will get Jesus to do things for you. Apparently, Jesus doesn't necessarily want to do them, but Mary can convince her son to do it. And so you have the various prayers to Mary And this is ground zero for why they do that. They go, look, you know, he's at a wedding, and uh, Mary says, you know, we really need some more wine here. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's not really up to me. You know, I don't need to do that. And Mary convinces him to do it, so pray to Mary. The problem with that is not only are you never commanded to pray to anything or anyone other than God himself, but Jesus rebukes his mom. No matter how you try to soften what Christ says, 
And what Christ says is respectful. I mean, if you, if you look at what's being said, it, it's not a slap, but it is a rebuke. And this is not the only time our Lord will rebuke his mother. His mom will at one point say, he's gone crazy, we have to go kidnap him and take him away from his ministry. And not only will Jesus not let her do that, but he will turn to them and say, my mother and my brothers are at the door. Now, who are my mother and my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven, that's who's my father and sister and mother. Which has the implication, mom's not really doing that at the moment. And my real family is here, you know. There will be a point in the Gospel of Luke where a woman will cry out, Blessed is the mom that bore you. And Jesus will say to her, No, rather, blessed is the one that hears God's word and does it. So there's a number of times where Jesus gently and respectfully rebukes his mother. And this is one of them. So it doesn't seem to be a commendation to pray to Mary at all. But we are left with the fact that Jesus' rebuke, which, by the way, take away from this, it is possible to honor your father and mother while giving a respectful rebuke. Um, I'm a father. I'm even a grandfather. I'm now at the apex list. And it's very tempting for fathers to say, look, you can't criticize me at all because, you know, you have to honor me. Well, Jesus rebuked his physical mom, and Jesus is sinless. So, you know, he's not disrespecting her. Um, she does say, now I want you to do this. And Jesus says, my time's not come yet. And Mary totally ignores that and says, now you go do whatever he says to do to the servants. And Jesus, who just said, look, my time's not come, says, okay, fine, draw out some water. What is happening here? Well, you and I cannot be saved unless Jesus the Christ perfectly keeps the law of God. He is our substitute. Christ is sinless. Any view of our Lord Christ that views him as sinful means he can't be our Savior. And that means that Christ keeps the moral law. And one of the moral laws is honor your father and mother. You are watching ground zero what that looks like. Jesus doesn't actually want to do his first sign here. It's very clear that that's what he said. This is not really the perfect time for my first sign. And mom totally ignores it and says, do whatever he tells you to do, and Christ does it. It is not sinful for Christ to perform his first sign here. It's just not his intent. But mom wants it done, and mom's irritating. Okay, read this passage. You can't get away from that. Mom has irritated Christ. But Christ honors his mother and performs his first sign, and he does it in a way that, quote, shows his glory. John uses that term. Nothing has been hurt by the fact that Christ is doing this sign. He has shown his glory, and not only that, the disciples who are with him, this is the first time it is said they believe on him. So it's not like bad things have happened, but mom wanted it. Christ wasn't really for it, but Christ did it, 
because moral perfection includes honor your father and your mother. See, it's very easy to honor your father and your mother or to submit to your husband or any such thing when you actually want to do it. I'm not even sure that's biblical obedience because if you want to do it, you're not actually doing it. It's only when honoring your father and your mother is irritating, but now not sinful, because there is absolutely no place in Scripture where God says, you know, if mom and dad tell you to sin, you go right ahead and do that. That, That's not on the table. But honoring your father and mother really only kind of comes into play if you don't really want to do it. That's where it becomes a moral activity. Uh, Honoring your husband, who wants you to do something or be something that you don't want to be, uh, that really only comes into play when you don't want to. And so you are watching our Lord Christ in his humanity, not in any way sin, but say, I didn't really want to do it this way, and mom jumped right over him. And Christ, who is morally perfect, who is living out the law of God for us, submits to his mother. That is honoring your father and your mother. And that is fairly significant in the passage. Don't pray to Mary. That's, that's not on the table. But Christ does, in fact, honor his mother. At the end of our passage, we are left with Christ going to Capernaum. And it's just a side note, but as I've pointed out a number of times, John is filling in the blanks for us. He, there will be several places where John knows we've heard the material in the synoptics, and he is giving us other things. And uh, why does John tell us, okay, now he goes to Capernaum? Well, it's because if we have been reading the synoptics, uh, we know that the ministry of our Lord really kind of kicks off in earnest when he goes to Capernaum. If we're reading Mark, uh, beginning with verse 16, we read, And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And this becomes kind of the the first step in our Lord's public ministry. Uh, John is showing us, he did his first sign, and then he he begins this stage that we're familiar with. And this is where he connects up with, uh, you know, James and John, Peter and Andrew. We've already seen him meet them while they are disciples of John, but this is where they will reconnect. And... If you put the synoptics side by side and look what happens, Jesus will spend about five weeks in Capernaum. Is five weeks many days or not many days? Well, depending upon the translation in English you use, you will be told one or the other. And the reason there is there is uh, a textual variant in a very small amount of manuscripts where the word not has dropped out. The majority of manuscripts say 
he went to Capernaum and he stayed many days. Five weeks is kind of a long time. But apparently some scribe looked at it and said, you know, five weeks isn't that long. He didn't stay that long. And so you have this small amount of manuscripts that say, well, it wasn't many days. Uh, the reason why I point this out is because, like almost every textual variant in uh, translations, um, there is an obvious answer. Jesus stayed there five weeks, and it was considered a while. But you will find in some English translations it's the opposite, and it's not exactly a spiritual PowerPoint or anything, but you will find it. But what John is, is doing is he is showing us the beginning of that moment in his ministry, which will be very significant. Christ begins his ministry, and he reconnects up with James and John and Peter and Andrew, and he is showing us what's going on, which we haven't been told yet.